right, and we are rolling once again. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass, and we are exploring faith, pursuing grace. Joining us on our podcast once again is one of my favorite guests that we've had on here, Brother Wes McAdams. Wes, how are you tonight? I am doing well. Good to be with you guys again. Appreciate y'all having me. Man, we love having you. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversations that we have had before, and I'm looking forward to having another one. And this evening, the topic we're going to be discussing is complementarianism. Now, there may be some of our listeners that hear this and they think, compliment what? They, they don't really know what that means, or maybe they, they know what it is, but they haven't heard it put in those terms. Complementarianism often has to do with the role of women in, and men and the balance between the roles that they have in relation to one another. Specifically, remember, complementarianism is discussed a lot of times. The discussion centers around women's roles in worship or women's roles in society or women's roles in the home and things like that. For our purposes, a lot of times within the church, the focus is on women's roles in worship. And while that's something that we'll get to later, we're going to be talking about complementarianism in a more broad way. So with that in mind, Wes, where do you put yourself with your view on complementarianism? From your perspective and from your experience, what's a good way to describe it and and where do you find yourself on that spectrum? Yeah, that's such a good question. And and I and I do think it's really easy to think in terms of a spectrum. Um but I'm not sure that that's the way I would even think about it. There, we could think about it in terms of there are people on the far right, as as we might say, that are very uh, strict and and believe that uh, women's roles are very narrow and that men's roles are very large, and and that that tends to be the way that that those on on that end of the spectrum, if you will, uh, tend to handle things. That that men can do a whole host of things and that women's roles in the home or in life or in the church are very restrictive. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum are those that uh, believe that there really are no restrictions and there really are no delineations between the various gender roles and that everyone can do whatever they want to do, whatever they're gifted at. Um, I don't know that I would put everything on a, a spectrum like that. And I'm certainly not an expert on anybody else's opinion. I was going to say accept mine, but I don't even know that I'm a, an expert on my own opinion. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I know where I stand and I know what, what I think Scripture is saying. And I, I tend to try to give people the benefit of the doubt. And so even those that hold a, a more restrictive view than I do or a less restrictive view than I do, I'm sure that that almost everyone is coming at that um, with with good intentions, with the best heart, because they love Jesus, they love Scripture, and they want to do what is right and pleasing to God, and uh, and want to be fair and and good to people. Um, I don't know that that's always the case, but I, I I try to to give people the benefit of the doubt and assume that's the case. Um, but the way I tend to read Scripture is as a narrative, as a an overarching story from the beginning to the end, um, and and one of my soapboxes personally is reading whole books of the Bible at a time. In fact, I wrote a book on on that idea of sitting down and reading a whole book in one sitting and going and not not just using verses as proof text, using verses as weapons, using verses as bullets. Um, and I think that when we when we stop proof texting everything, we can kind of step outside of the the spectrum, as it were, and realize 
these different positions are all about how do we see the story of scripture and where do we see ourselves in that story? What, what's this story really about? Who is God in the story? Who are we in the story? How do we see other people in the story? Um, and so it's, it's harder to put a narrative type of a framework on a spectrum um, because it's not just about rules and it's not about how many rules there are or how few rules there are. It's about a story and what story we see ourselves uh, involved in. So, so that's really how I try to approach the whole question of, uh, of scripture, of discipleship. And, and I think that complementarianism uh, or egalitarianism on the other side um, has to be seen in the context of that story. And it can't just be a, a siloed conversation where we're talking about it disconnected from all of these other things, disconnected from discipleship or disconnected from walking by the spirit and not by the flesh. Um, and so that's how I try to approach it as in a holistic way, in a way that says, how, how does this play into the story that we're a part of? Well, I think that's a really smart way to approach it. And I think that's a, a, a kind way to approach it. And, and from what I can tell from where I am, that is really the best way because it is in keeping with the purpose and intent of scripture, at least as I understand it. And it's, I really appreciate what you said about, you know, we go here, go there, you know, it's not about going here or there for a proof text. You know, a lot of people do that. And I know I used to be one of those people that would do that. And at that point, it's not about really following that trajectory of scripture, understanding it within its own narrative and within its own context. It was about me being right and someone else being wrong. And with a topic like this, it's real easy for something that is such a hot button to devolve into that. And it's so easy to cast dispersions on other people that may disagree with you or that disagree with me or whatever else. And then you really never get anywhere. You never achieve a better level of understanding. And if everyone would just step back a little bit and examine this, you know, through an ancient contextual lens and then find a way to apply it in, in our day and time, in our modern era, in our modern context, I think that one of the things we would see is, is that there's a whole lot more overlap between the two positions than there are differences whenever it really comes down to it. Yeah, and that's something, too, when, Wes, you're talking about the narrative arc, and and that's so important. I think that whole framework is is just a good foundation to to really any issue, you know, when we're talking about any issue of how do we apply this to our lives? Well, let's try to look at the overall theming. What is the, what is the arc here that's being presented from, from the, the very start to the very end, what's going on? What, what, what can we do with this whole story and how it plays out? And especially today, how do we apply that? And so I really appreciate you saying that. And, and I want to kind of move into this idea of how complementarianism has really gotten a, a bad rap there. It's, it's really it oftentimes has a bad reputation <laughs> uh, that if, if you are still considered a complementarian in any view, whether even a more or less a soft complementarian, if we want to call it that um, it's, it usually people look at you as archaic, someone who just doesn't love women you you really don't care uh, about anybody other than than the the male race and uh, or you know just kind of that idea that negative connotation and that's one reason why we wanted to have you on here to discuss this because we want people to know there are individuals out there who who are complementarian 
and they love the Lord. They try to seek the to God's will. They they love Jesus. They love males. They love females. They love everyone. Um, but they still find themselves in that complementarian position. Now, as you know, Lee and I, we lean more towards the egalitarian position. And we had uh, Dr. Linda King on here to discuss that. But we wanted to have you come on here to let people know that if they still find themselves as a complementarian, that's okay. That they they're not a a bad person, they're not a bad Christian, and that there are biblical reasons that uh, people understand and come to to see why they they believe the way they do. And uh, the complementarian position definitely falls under that umbrella. And there are about I would say, at least from my perspective. I can see why someone would be a complementarian. I was for many years. And so this isn't to have you on here to prove you wrong or anything of that nature. It's to to have you on here so people can hear a different perspective. And so why do you think, though, that almost all complementarians almost get this bad reputation of just uh, misogynist individuals who just really don't like women and don't want to see them thrive? Well, I mean, I, I think that on the one hand, some of that bad rap that complementarians get is well-deserved, right? I mean, I think that that on the one hand, uh, there has been abuse, there has been chauvinism, there has been misogyny, there has been this, this abusive way that men have treated women and have used scripture to justify that mistreatment of women. Um, and so on, on the one hand, it, it's well-deserved. But on the other hand, I think there's also... This is this is the way we we tend to operate in discussions now. We we make everything a binary choice. You're either this or you're this. We make everything binary and then we demonize our opponents and we say these people are not just wrong. These people are not just mistaken. They're evil and they're oppressive. And I think that's a lot of times what ends up happening with people from a complementarian position is very quickly, and it's amazing how quickly this this shift has taken place over the last few decades that that we've gone from a place where across Christendom, for the vast majority of Christian history, has theologians, ministers, whomever have taken a complementary position to one degree or another, uh, but now very quickly. Um, it's it's being um, not just not just disagreed with, but vilified as if it was a, a demonic position to hold. Um, and, and again, there has been abuse. And so I want to affirm the fact that, yes, there have been people that have abused this position. There have been people that have abused this idea and have used verses of Scripture to control, to manipulate, to oppress. Uh, that's true. But to lump everybody together and to say, well, if you hold any sort of complementary position, then you are an oppressive person. Wow, that that is is really not leaving any room for nuance. It's making everything a binary and it's demonizing the people that we disagree with. And I think we have to we have to get away from that that type of thinking. We have to enter into these conversations with grace and love and mercy, um, and and also understand where people are coming from before we vilify them. I think that's absolutely right. It's we have to understand on all sides of any discussion that in most cases there's a lot of gray area. And I know for a long time, I didn't appreciate the gray areas and saw everything in a strict black and white sense. And 
there are some people who change their perspective or they change their positions for whatever reason. And they'll see it in terms of black and white and they'll be on one side and then they'll just jump over to the other side and they don't yeah. appreciate the nuance. They don't investigate yeah, the nuance. And, they don't promote that nuance. And I don't think that, cause this is something I actually wrote about this not too long ago um, on a social media post. I saw someone talk about how uh, I won't get into the specifics, but basically they had made a post on their own page about how, if, if you don't agree with them on grace, then you know, you're just, for lack of better words, a horrible person who doesn't care about God. And I got to think, and that's kind of a contradictory post when you think about it, because what tends to happen is when anyone switches on a position, and I, and I find myself still fighting this oftentimes, and even when I really kind of changed overall, when I changed years ago and I wrote my book, one of the things I talk about in there is just how it's easy when we switch sides to forget where we were. And it wasn't just an overnight thing for any of us, uh, whether it's any view, whatever view we hold, when we really have a position that we are convicted by and we have studied that, it took a long time to get there. And if we ever change on whatever that position is, it took a long time to change. And so sometimes when we're done with the race, we wonder what's taken everyone else so long or we wonder why people aren't running the, the race the way we are. And then Wes, as you pointed out, we begin to dehumanize them or we begin to try to attack their character or their motive. And so one thing we want to really do on our podcast at all times is make sure we don't do that to anyone <laughs> for any position because we want the same grace shown to, we want to show the same grace that has been shown to us by God. And that what we, we want other people to show us that same grace as well. I don't want people to think I'm a horrible person because I've switched positions or that I no longer care about the truth. And so that's why I don't want to accuse someone else of no longer caring about the truth. And so I, I appreciate you coming on here, Wes, and, and talking about this. I like to brag about you because I really do believe that the way that you present yourself, the way you hold yourself uh, even when you did hold some more conservative views in your past, you always did so with such a just Christ-like spirit. And uh, I wish I could be more like you, man. And I, and I say that in all uh, genuineness, because when, when we've had conversations, you just do such a good job at being honest, at being real, at being vulnerable, at being kind and combining all those things together. And so with with that being said, let's just go ahead and jump right in to just letting you have the floor for a few moments so that you can give this framework, this narrative arc that you believe does go in favor of the complementarian view. And just tell us what ways you believe the Bible speaks to your understanding of complementarianism. Yeah, and I appreciate that, Kevin. I, I, and I appreciate both of you having this platform for discussing these things and, and, and doing so with grace and, and giving equal time and equal uh, weight to to different ideas and and I, that's one of the things I appreciate you about you guys so much um, you know as it as it pertains to complementarianism um, and again that's the idea that that genders are equal but that they have complementary roles that men and women um, are equal in value they're equal in value before God and they should be treated equally valuable by each other and that they have complementary uh, but distinct roles. Um, and, and I think I even have to start before Scripture. I think even when we look biologically, when we look at, at human beings, I think that we can see, at least to some degree, 
that that there is a, a complementary nature to genders. There, there's a complementary nature to the sexes between men and women. In fact, all of us, every single human being alive, is the product of the complementary roles between men and women. That that's the way reproduction works. Is that men play a role in reproduction and women play a role in reproduction and they do not those roles are not interchangeable they they can't play each other's roles they can only play their own roles and so they have complementary but equal roles in the process i i realize we're using the the word equal in in a very different way we're we're not saying equal as in the same but we're saying that both are necessary. Both are equally necessary. E- equal and so, in uh, value, but different in function, maybe? Would that be a good yes, way of, yeah, of for putting sure. it? No, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, it it's different. It's a different function, but they're both, they're both necessary. And you can't, you can't have one without the other. A man can't say, well, you know, a, a wife is important or a woman is important for having a child, but she's not necessary. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. And a, and a woman can't say <laughs> about a man, you know, yeah, that's important, but it's not necessary. Both are equally necessary. Um, and every single human being in the world is the product of that union, that complementary union. So I would say to one degree or another, we are all complementarians to some degree. We all understand that this is how it works biologically. This is how it works reproductively. Um, this is how nature, not just with humans, but with with all mammals, this is the way that it works. So it's part of the created order. Um, so so that idea that men and women are not the same, I think, is is true in in a lot of different ways. And the Bible affirms our uniqueness. Um, but but I think it's beautiful. I mean, no matter where we a person comes down on all of the exact details of this, it really is pretty amazing that this ancient story of creation, uh, it, it doesn't describe women in a demeaning way at all. It, it affirms the important and equally important role that both Adam and Eve play in in humanity. In fact, the word Adam, the word Adam means human. And then the story, as the story goes, man is split in half and God takes his side, not just a rib from his side, but takes his side and makes woman. And so now you have humanity that is two parts. There's part of humanity that's male and part of humanity that's female. Um, And so the Bible affirms our uniqueness, but ascribes equally important roles to each gender. Um, and, and I would say that as we as we even work our way through the Bible, you see you see that the tension that exists between men and women. But when you get especially into the New Testament, and you see how that that role should be, how how men should treat women, how women should treat uh, men. Um, I, I can't help but think that that things like chivalry, even if chivalry only existed in someone's imagination and it wasn't really lived out by by knights in shining armor, but even that idea as it exists in in our imaginations, even in the secular imagination, uh, that idea of men using their power not to manipulate, not to seize, not to hurt, not to oppress, but using their power to protect, using their power to provide, using their power to as simple as open a door for someone. Um, So that idea of 
of men and women being different, but each having their own beauty, their own type of strength, their own way of living out, reflecting the image of God in the world, and then working together side by side, like two sides of a coin, uh, like two halves of a circle, working together to fulfill the calling that God gave to humanity to reflect his image into the world. Um, and that the way that it, it should be, I believe, it is sort of reflected in that that idea, that, that romanticized idea of chivalry, of, of men using their strength, using their power, using their leadership uh, to serve women. Now, of course, unfortunately, and you almost have to say this, that unfortunately, that's not how it's always lived out. But just yeah. because it's not always how it's lived out doesn't mean that 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 complementary roles weren't part of God's intention. It just means that people, both men and women, are fallen and broken and and um, are not what we ought to be. But what we ought to be is human beings that make each other better and that use our own uniqueness for the good of others and for the glory of God. I think that's incredibly well said. And one of the things that came to mind whenever you were describing the framework in the lens through which you view the complementarian position. I'm a musician. I'm a drummer. And whenever I was in high school, I w at one point I was in three different bands at the same time. And it, it got a little crazy at that point. Um, it was wild, but it, it was a good time. And there's, there's no experience quite like being with other musicians and creating music in the moment. I'm playing the drums. My buddy's playing the bass. My brother's playing lead guitar. My cousin's playing rhythm guitar. He's singing. We're, we're creating music in that moment. And in creating music with other musicians, in, in my mind, that's a pretty fitting analogy for the complementary position because I have my own purpose to serve and my function within the band as the drummer. My buddy has his purpose as the bass player. My brother has his purpose. My cousin has his purpose. We're all doing our part to play what we play. None of us are more valuable than the other. The band doesn't exist without the other. And the function of creating music is extremely hampered if one of us is not present. We all have different roles, but they are all equally important roles. And, and in my mind, that's that's a really good analogy. And I'm kind of patting myself on the back for thinking of that while we're in the <laughs> middle of this conversation. But one of the things that you said is, you know, this idea of during the creation. And this is something that I've read about. And I've, I've, I'm really glad you said it, that whenever God created Eve and she formed him from Adam's side, that she took or that God rather took Adam's side and created Eve from his side. That that Hebrew word, it doesn't just mean one tiny little bone in your rib cage. It it's it, she is part and parcel a half of a whole, and Adam is half of a whole. So in that regard, from the garden story, it almost seems as if in that sense, in the garden, there's almost an egalitarian um, framework for their relationship with one another, as in they are equal in value, they are equal in in role within the garden but they still have complementary roles within that and that may sound contradictory but there's it, there's no subordination there at least that i can see so it seems from what i see in scripture that with the fall is where a more subordinate role came into being for the woman 
um, is I know I've heard that mentioned by other people that hold the complementarian position. Is that a fair way to say that? Is that how you see that? Or is there something there that I'm not seeing and that I'm missing? I think that is such a great question. And I think that this is where I might differ with some other complementarians. Um, I don't think that male leadership is a product of the fall. I believe that male leadership is a product of creation. And I, I think that that Paul bears this out in uh, in First Timothy chapter two uh, when he says that that Adam was created first. And 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 that's really hard for us to um, to appreciate, I think, as modern Westerners, because we don't ascribe any leadership role to the firstborn of a family. Um, but the firstborn of a family, that role, and again, it, roles were very important. Um, we, we don't think of roles in families probably as much as we do maybe roles in the military. That might be a good, um, a good metaphor or analogy, or maybe even a sports team, like, like the, the quarterback on a sports team, on, on a football team. Um, it, maybe, we, maybe thinking about this in, in terms of other areas, but for the people in the ancient Near, Near East, the, the firstborn of a family was the one who was responsible for the family. Now, we tend to think about leadership as a privilege, but it's really more of a responsibility because it meant, and, and to this day, I mean, I have a brother-in-law uh, who is from uh, Zimbabwe, and, and to this day, the firstborn of the family has a responsibility to care for the entire family in every sense of the word. Um, and so th they feel that financial responsibility. They feel that moral responsibility to care for everyone else in the family. In fact, if you've seen the uh, the TV show, my my wife has gotten me into watching The Crown, um, and and one of the one of the brothers um, that was that was king for I think less than a year, um, and and he ended up. Um, giving up the title, giving up the crown and the rest of the family, um, his, his brother became King. And of course he passed away. And then Queen Elizabeth, uh, was the daughter of, of the, the brother who took the throne, but the, the oldest brother that gave up the crown, the rest of the family blamed him for not taking his responsibility seriously for not being the King. Now we look back and say, why would you not want to be King? <laughs> why would you not want to have the crown? It, it's good to be King. Right. And, and we think, we think that, 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 that's where, that, that's what everybody would want. Well, no, when you really understand leadership, you understand that this is more of a responsibility than it is a privilege. And so Adam was created first. He was the firstborn of the family, which meant it was his responsibility to care for his family. And now his family has multiplied by two. And now he has the responsibility to care for his wife, which is why, of course, even though Eve is the one who eats first, and then gives to her husband, Paul would say in Romans 5, that sin entered the world through Adam because it was Adam's responsibility. He was the firstborn. It was his responsibility to lead and take care of his family, which preceded the fall. But of course, before the fall, his firstborn role was easy because there was harmony. And Lee, I love your analogy of, of a band or an orchestra because it's, it's all about harmony. And that's the way the garden was. There was harmony. There was harmony between humans 
and the ground. There was harmony between humans and the animals. There was harmony between God and humans. And there was harmony between humans and humans. And when the fall occurs, then tension is introduced. Then adversarial relationships are introduced. Then things become disharmony, dis disunity. Um, and, and that's what God says to Eve. He says in chapter three and verse 16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, instead of them moving in the same direction, when you're moving in the same direction, when a band is all playing the same sheet of music and they're all moving in the same direction, nobody cares who's the lead guitarist. Nobody cares who's in the lead because they're all moving in the same direction. It's only when somebody wants to take things in a different direction, well, now somebody's got to be in charge. Now somebody's got to call the shots. Now leadership is hard. Now leadership is a challenge. And after the fall, and it's not just Adam and Eve that there's tension. Eventually there'll be tension between Cain and Abel. Between all humans, there is pulling in two different directions. And so now leadership is going to be hard. Leadership is going to be a challenge. And and that's what that that promise is of the of the fall. The consequence of the fall is now there's going to be contrary wills and their wills are going to butt heads. And the same words are used in the next chapter, Genesis 4 and verse 7, when God is talking to Cain and he says that sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's the same word, same wording in Genesis 3.16 about Adam and Eve as it is in Genesis 4 and verse 7 between Cain and sin. There's that tension. There's that adversarial relationship. And now because of the fall, now the relationship between Adam and Eve is adversarial. And so now they're, they're not pulling in the same direction. They're pulling against each other. And now there's struggle and tension in between them. So for, for those listening at home, I'm going to, I'm going to try to draw a distinction right here and let me know if I'm, if, if I'm summarizing what you just said fairly, because with the, the egalitarian position, um, you know, it teaches that prior to the curse that man and man and woman were completely equal. There was no leadership distinction. Um, that was all part of the curse. And then, of course, in Christ, we go back to or at least strive. I mean, we're, we're human, so we're always going to fall short, but we strive to go back to the way things were. And that's the egalitarian position of there was no male leadership, whereas you would say, you agree with the fact that we should try to go back to the garden <laughs> as much as possible. But the difference is you would argue that in Genesis 3.16, where the egalitarian position says, well, this is where everything happened. You would say, well, no, that's where everything started to be abused. That, that's when everything started to uh, where, where male leadership and the idea of male female complementarianism. That's when sin into the world and for lack of better words, mucked it up. But prior to that, there was still complementarianism. It was just in the way it was designed to be. It worked in harmony, as, as you and Lee both have talked about. The band was working together, and then all of a sudden, uh, the lead singer, he wanted to you know, go on the road by himself, and the drummer wanted to be the lead singer. And then all of a sudden, you have a, a messed up band. But there was still, prior to that, a lead singer, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so that would be really the big, if I'm hearing you correctly, that's really the the one of the fundamental distinctions from what I understand after listening to to Dr. Linda King and listening to you is that you would you would you both believe as Christians and in Christ, 
which we'll kind of get into that, I think, in the maybe in the next episode. I think we're going to talk about that. But the idea of in Christ, yes, you would agree with that wholeheartedly, and we should strive to go back to that pre-Genesis uh, 3.16 as much as possible, knowing that we're still going to fall short. Both positions would argue that. The difference is one position would say prior to Genesis 3.16, complete equality, and not just equality in value, but function and role, aside from biological, of course, but, you know, just as, as far as uh, human role, uh, relational role, we'll put it that way. Um, and you would say, well, yeah, you agree we should go back to that, but it it was it was complementarianism back then, too. It was there was there were complementarian roles of husband leadership, male leadership. Is that correct? I, I'm kind of mumbling here, but yeah. I'm just trying to make it clear to, to show for our audience to understand if you're following along with if you if they've listened to Dr. Linda King to kind of understand where the differences actually lie. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to put it. And, and I think that for me, the the egalitarian position is is right, again, as you said, to say that life needs to be as much here as it was in the for the church for Christians, it needs to be as yeah. much the way that it was pre-fall as possible. And I agree with that. But to me, it's more like it's kind of like if if you say there's a general and a colonel and they're fighting with each other, that then one person says, well, the best way to resolve that conflict is to make them both generals. And it's like, well, actually, that's not the way to resolve the conflict. The way to resolve the conflict is actually to figure out what caused the tension in the first place, remove the tension. So it's not about redistributing leadership roles. It's about removing the toxicity. It's about removing the guilt. It's about removing the blame. It's about getting everybody to move in the same direction. And so, I, I again, yeah, I, I think you, you summarized that, that really well, Kevin. So a question that I'm wondering about, one of the things that Dr. King had mentioned whenever we had her on to discuss this idea is whenever Eve is created, um, God's, you know, whenever, you know how the story goes, but to summarize for our listeners, whenever um, Adam becomes lonely, he's incredibly lonely because there's no one comparable to him. And God says, I'll make him a helper. Well, that word for helper doesn't really denote subordination, and it's actually a word used for God whenever God helps Israel as well. Um, it, there's a, a, a demarcation of equality and adequacy that is present within that word in and of itself, and it, and it speaks to a counterpart or a partner, someone who you're working with, um, not necessarily subordination. So with that in mind, um, from your perspective, how do you view the subordination being present? Where do you pull that from within the text itself? Again, great question. And, and I, I, I'm not obviously a Hebrew scholar, but, but from my studies, I, and you can, you can look at the word azer, and the word azer is the word that is translated, the Hebrew word azer is the one that's translated as helper. Um, and you can, you can look at all the times that's used, and you're right, most of the time it's used, it's used about God. So obviously it's not about, it's not a word that even speaks to superiority or equality. So it's not a word that speaks to equality because when God is our azer, he's not our equal, <laughs> he is our superior. So when God is being our azer, he's not, he's not at all our equal, he is our superior. Um, and, and when God created Eve to be Adam's azer, he wasn't creating Eve to be 
Adam's superior or her, you know, it's not a word that even speaks to that issue of superiority or or equality. Uh, In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 12 and verse 14, uh, it says about the king of Judah, it talks about his troops and his azers, his his helpers. So in that in that context, his azers, his helpers were his subordinates. So it is a word that can refer to a subordinate. It really just means that someone has a task to do and then someone is there to help them to accomplish their task. A lot of times, to your point, Lee, it, it is God who acts as that helper to help accomplish the task. But to say that it, it can't be a subordinate isn't, isn't really true. That, that's definitely an argument that the egalitarian group likes to use, that it can't be a subordinate. But again, Ezekiel 12, 14, it, it's, it can be used in that context. But again, it's not really... It's not really about that. So it's like saying green doesn't denote a color or a, or a letter, right? It's it's just a, or it doesn't denote um, a, a number. It's it's a color, and so it this is a word that doesn't it doesn't even speak to equality or superiority. And the word connecto uh, is the word for uh, suitable or a fitting a fitting helper. So the the phrase is a connecto azer, connecto azer. Um, and, and the word connecto is someone, to your earlier point, Lee, it's, it's someone who the word there means like opposite him or someone that is, is looking or that he can see. It's almost like a mirror image. And to your point about the animals, that, that if, if you're thinking about Adam looking in the face of all of the animals, he looks in the face of the giraffe, he looks in the face of the cow, he looks, and all of these are so very different from him. And God says, I wanna make him a counterpart too. I wanna make him a partner that can help him. Um, so to say that Konegdo Azer refers to his equal, well, I think we're reading into the text something that's not there. now. It's not to say that that means that she's unimportant because it's not. And again, the, the complementary position isn't that that the that the connecto azer, that the suitable helper is an insignificant role. It is an equally complementary role. And I think that that phrase connecto azer really speaks to the complementary position because it's saying this is a counterpart that is suitable to help the man accomplish the task that God has given him, really the, the other side of humanity, so that these two parts together can accomplish their goal. But I, I think the, the male leadership part of that, the fact that, that, that Adam was responsible for leading the, the human family, doesn't come from the Konegdo Azer idea, but comes from being the firstborn. So because he was created first, Paul says that's why men should fulfill that role of leadership is because of the firstborn status. Um, and, and again, firstborn responsibility, not privilege. Well, one of the things I really appreciate about about what you explain there is your appreciation of context. Because you can't just take one word and say that that word means one thing in every single context that word's used in. And, and whenever you were saying what you were saying about Azer, I can't help but think about my boys. You know, my, my little boys, they, I help them all the time, tying their shoes, going to the bathroom. We're working on 
our our youngest, who's five, on knowing how to adequately clean himself after he goes to the bathroom. And that has been a chore because that kid's as hard headed as I am. But whenever I help them, I'm not subordinate to them. Even whenever I'm helping them clean themselves after they go to the restroom, I'm not subordinate to them. I mean, I am the boss. I am, to to quote uh, uh, from a uh, old brother, where art thou? I'm the pater familius. That's just how it is, you know? And, you know, but there are times where they have helped me. They have been a helper to me. There was something that we had dropped under the couch and I could not reach my arm in there. My hand was too big, but my, my oldest boy, he, he had this little tiny skinny arm and skinny hand. He was able to reach under there and grab it. He was a helper to me. And in that sense, he was subordinate to me. But my wife, whenever I think about our relationship and how we have been helpers to one another, there have been times where, you know, she has more knowledge about something or a better idea about something. And I have followed her lead in that. I have delegated to follow her lead. And there are times where she's followed my lead. We work together. We complement each other in that role. And, and really for that reason, even though I tend to lean in the more egalitarian um, direction as it relates to roles in worship, which we'll talk about in the next episode, I, I, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, I think all of us are complementarians to some degree or another because we recognize the help that we provide one another and we recognize that some of us are better equipped for some things than others in, in that sense. But for what reason do you believe that yeah, one was created to be in, I guess, for lack of a better term, subordination to the man, for the man to lead? Is it is is there something more than just that firstborn position or is there something else there? Do you think that that's the the uh, the primary reason for that? Well, I, I and I'm, I, and I'm and sorry. Before, oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say before you ask that or before we, we jump off that, I want to say this, too, for people listening. And Wes, you already brought this up that especially our Western society, we're so used to thinking in binary terms, you're either this or that. And as Lee pointed out, I, it, it's it's words are loaded with meaning and typically they have different meanings for different people. You know, if I say the word conservative or liberal, that can mean a host of different things, depending upon who I'm currently talking to. And so I, I think that if if I'm hearing you correctly and if I if, if I understood Dr. Linda King correctly, there does seem to be a lot of overlap, at least in the positions, the way that both of you are describing them. I mean, obviously there's clear differences, but there's also a lot of overlap where in some way, I think that she would say, yes, I believe in, in complementarian views in X, Y, Z. And then in other ways you would say, well, yes, I'm an egalitarian when it comes to X, Y, Z. And so for people listening, this isn't a matter of you have to make your like a decision of, are you a hundred percent egalitarian? Or are you a hundred percent complementarian? Cause I don't think anybody can, can say they're a hundred percent one way or the other, because there is a lot of overlap when you're discussing uh, this topic. And, you know, we use those terms for, you know, for try to simplify it a little bit so that we know what we're talking about and context and things of that nature. But I just want to point that out to the audience who's listening that if this isn't a, Oh, well, I thought I was a complementarian, but maybe I'm an egalitarian or I thought I was an egalitarian or well, I don't know, maybe I'm a complementarian because I think you can look to both positions, or at least I do, and I I can say, yeah, well, that that makes sense, and I can kind of believe both of these things um, without necessarily saying I'm fully this or fully that. And so I just wanted to interrupt real quick. Go ahead, uh, Lee. Sorry. Go ahead with your question. Well, I'll go ahead and just state it again. In, in our discussion, 
Um, one of the, the points that you circle back around to is whenever Paul references the created order in his letter to Timothy um, about Adam being the firstborn or the first created and that that invokes or rather um, implies a particular sense of, of superior, well, not superiority, that's the wrong word, but a sense of subordination. Headship. Headship. Yeah, that's the good word. That's a good word. So are there any other aspects to that idea that you believe informs that viewpoint or is that, does that seem to be the primary one? Yeah, I think that that, that does. And, and I, I, as far as the creation account, especially is concerned. And, and I think that, I think that probably the people in, in the Hebrew context, in the ancient Hebrew context, uh, the ancient Israelites, ancient Jews would have assumed a lot of this. Um, and so we're trying to read back into it and try to figure out, you know, where did all of this come from? And 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 really, it's something that they kind of assumed. But but again, I, it's not so much when I read the creation story, it's not so much that Eve is subordinate to Adam. It's more that it's Adam's responsibility. And, and he's the one that gets the blame. And he's the one that is responsible. And I think that for me, that's that's where it all comes down to. And and back to your modern analogies, Lee, about the family and the home, that that when when someone has a task, like your children, for instance, and you say, okay, tie your shoes, but they can't yet tie their shoes. And so you help them tie their shoes. The very fact that you're helping them shows that they are the ones who to whom the task primarily falls. It's their responsibility, even though you're helping them to accomplish that, and they couldn't actually accomplish it without you. And so the responsibility to be God's image bearer in the world fell to Adam. Unfortunately, he couldn't accomplish it by himself. And so he needed someone to come alongside him. He needed a counterpart. Um, but the responsibility, his primary responsibility never changed. It was still his responsibility. Now, again, that with the fall, with that toxicity, with that uh, clashing of wills, with sinful desires and ambitions, that can be abused. But leadership is primarily about, okay, who gets the blame for this thing getting messed up? <laughs> which is why, <laughs> thankfully, yeah. which is why, thankfully, Jesus becomes the head of the church, so that none of us have to be the head of the church. The responsibility for saving the church, for saving the human family, falls to the new firstborn son, the new firstborn head of the church, and it's Jesus, because there is no other man that can do that role. And so it's not about the subordination of women, but it is about the responsibility of men to, to lead, to protect, to provide for, to teach, to help their families do what we're, what we're called to do. Well, one of the things that you said there, and so, this is, Oh, sorry, Kevin, go ahead. No, I, I'm, I think there's a delay. Can you, yeah, I think there's a delay. <laughs> yeah, there may be, but we'll do the best we can with what we've got. Um, okay. All right. Sorry well, about that. No, you're good. Uh, what I was going to say is that kind of getting more into the to the nuts and bolts, because I think you did a really good job explaining the the complementarian position so that people can understand your framework and, and where you're coming from. So when we put that into practical application today, and some of these may fall under the, the gray area, but 
you know, most people, when they hear something like this, they, they want to jump right to the worship questions, which we're going to do that in the next episode. So that'll be fun. <laughs> but in, in this specific episode, I want to kind of keep it on the idea of the garden and also how that applies to today in our time and our culture, because I'm curious, what are your views of the specific roles of men and women for marriage as they're described in the New Testament. So, for example, most of the what I call kind of historical hard complementarianism was and has been justified by using the Bible. And as you pointed out, just because somebody has used a Bible verse to justify something doesn't mean that they used it correctly, because we know a lot of things have been justified in the name of the Bible that we would disagree with and say that that wasn't a proper understanding. But we do know historically um, there's there has been a lot of what we would call abuse, whether it's not necessarily physical. I think that that has happened at times, but also just uh, mental abuse as as well as the the male telling their their wife, the husband telling their wife that they have to be in subordination. And and some of the reasons that that that's the case is because of passages like. Ephesians 5.22 and 1 Peter 3.6, for example, you have Paul telling women to obey their husbands in all things as the church should obey Jesus. And then you have Peter in 1 Peter 3.6 talking about how, uh, in that context specifically, talking about how women, the wives, need to submit to their non-believing husbands in hopes they can win them over to the Lord. And even uses Sarah as an example of how Abraham or how Sarah called Abraham Lord and how she submitted to him in obedience. And so certainly when you look at those passages and you read them and say, okay, well, if a wife is to obey her husband in all things, as the church is to obey Jesus. And if Peter's using this example of calling my husband, you know, a woman calling her husband Lord, then in in those contexts, I, I can certainly see how people could come to the conclusion that, yeah, um, um, it's, it's a man's world and a woman lives in it. And, uh, you know, if you're married, the woman has to do pretty much whatever the the man says, because if, if we're the church and we're obeying Christ in all things, and that's the parallel Paul makes, certainly we can see how that has come to be and how that has historically kind of been the go-to. Even in the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, um, we see how things have changed. And so, a lot of that just to say how do you understand the 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 role distinctions within marriage pragmatically speaking how today should the husband lead and when should the the wife follow and and just what does that look like in practicality in according to your understanding yeah such such a great question and i think that this illustrates exactly the problem that we started with was proof texting uh, dealing with quote unquote women's roles, what what you should and should do, women, um, rather than dealing with this holistically and say humanity is made up of two sides, uh, men and women, and Christianity redeems both men and women, and and the call of discipleship is for both men and women, and and I think that too, I I'm, I'm, my mind automatically went to Paul saying that God loves a cheerful giver and that he doesn't want us to give out of compulsion. Now, Paul is talking about giving of our finances and we tend to apply it to that. But I think that that actually 
goes across the board on all of our discipleship that God doesn't want us to give out of compulsion. So when we take a passage and we compel people to submit to whatever, whether we're talking about Christians in general submitting to the pagan authorities, Romans chapter 13, obey the your earthly leaders and do what they tell you to do. If we're using these passages to compel people against their will to submit, that becomes very abusive. That's very toxic. That is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus has so freed me from fear and death and sin so that I want to love people in a surprising way. You think about the, the, um, the Sermon on the Mount, turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Someone sues you for one piece of clothing, give them the other one too. Someone wants to borrow from you, give it to them without expecting in return. This is the kind of voluntary giving of ourselves that the gospel calls both men and women to do. And then in passages like Ephesians 5, Paul is describing what this new humanity looks like in various aspects of the home. And he talks about men. Here's what it looks like for you not compelling your wives to do what you want them to do, that is atrocious. That has nothing to do with the gospel. Compelling your wife to do what you want them to do, berating them, that's not the gospel. Here's how you live it out, men. You love your wife like Jesus loves the church. You lay down your life for her. Is that a leadership role? Absolutely it is. Even to the point that you die for her, you do everything you can for her well-being. Well, how Paul, how do I how do I get her to do what what I want her to do? That's not a part of the discussion at all. Paul never, no apostle, Jesus, no no passage ever tells men how to get their wives to do what they want them to do. That's not the gospel. There's no place for that. But but then we, what we do is we manipulatively take these verses that are for the redemption of women and we use them in that manipulative kind of way. And that is so wrong because these passages, if you want to know what men are supposed to do, read the passages that are addressed to men. If you want to read what women are supposed to do, then as a woman, you read the passages that are addressed to, to you, to women. And so in the same way that men voluntarily give themselves for their wives, women are to voluntarily submit and respect their sub, submit to and respect their husbands like the church does to Jesus. And so it only works. It only works harmoniously when it's done by the spirit, when we walk in the spirit. And so trying to make this just about rules and roles then it misses the whole point because it's about redemption. It's about a new way of living with the fruit of the spirit. Well, and I appreciate that so much. I, I really like how you put that. And one of the points that you keep making over and over and over again is that it's the man's role as leader to lead. That doesn't mean necessarily that women are down here on the floor and man stepping on them to get there. That leadership is a, is it's a service role in which man serves his family. And whenever you think about service and servants, there's been no greater servant than Christ himself. And if a man, I, I have always thought about it in these terms and I still believe this fully to this day that if a man wants his wife to submit to him, he needs to be worth submitting to. And if he truly loves his wife as Christ loves the church, 
then you will have harmony. And I really do believe that if there is, and, and there are exceptions to this, and I don't mean to just make a blanket statement that just applies to everything, but I think in large part, if there is disharmony in the home, many times it's because the man has failed to be the leader that God has called him to be. I really believe that's the truth. But one of the things that came to mind earlier, whenever you were discussing the the firstborn role being a part of this. And one of the things I also love about this conversation and how you present this, Wes, is how you tie it back to redemption. You tie it back to the gospel. The idea of Adam being the firstborn and Jesus, you know, Paul speaks to Jesus being the second Adam in a way. It's the idea of the prevalence of the second born almost being the redeemer. You see that theme really throughout the Old Testament in a lot of ways. Because Cain's the firstborn, Cain screws up, and then Abel is the one who's righteous before God, and then it's left to Seth. You know, you see Esau as the firstborn, but Jacob is the one that's exalted. You see um, Ishmael being born before Isaac, but Isaac's the child of promise. In the story of Moses, Aaron is older than Moses, but Moses is the one that ascends to prominence. You know, David, he's the youngest of all of his brothers, and yet he's the one who would become king over Israel. And you see that thread being woven or weaved. I'm not sure which is the appropriate one to use. As a former English major, I'm kind of embarrassed by that. But you see that thread being woven throughout the scriptures, and then you see that culminating in Jesus. I don't know. That's just kind of a thought that came to mind as we were talking about terms of firstborn and secondborn. But but all of that to say this. Whenever we think about terms of firstborn priority within that culture, that's another point that you've made over and again is that in that culture, that would have made perfect sense to them because the firstborn is the one who is responsible for the family. They are the one who receives the birthright. They are the one who receives the greater inheritance. And that's because they had greater responsibility. It's not just because of the luck of the draw, because they happen to be conceived and born first. There was a measure of responsibility that came with that. Now, with that being a culturally situated idea, the last question that we'll ask before we bring part one of our discussion to a close, these gender roles and descriptions that are found in the New Testament, do you believe that these are culturally subjective? Now, I think I know how you're going to answer this. I know how I would have answered it before, and I think the way you're going to answer it would be largely how I would answer it now, especially based on what you said about this being a holistic idea that encompasses far more than just rules and regulations. But I know I've heard it preached before. I never personally preached this, but I have heard it preached before that it would be a sin for a man to be a stay-at-home dad while the wife is the primary breadwinner. Because Titus 2 says that a woman is to be busy at home. She's to be the homemaker, the keeper of the home. And that's, you know, that's not the way that it should be. And if in, in, in that sense, do you, do you believe that those situations, that that idea is culturally situated? And if, if it's not, well, then what's the application now? Yeah. And, and I don't, I know I'm kind of running behind. Can y'all hear me still? Yes. Okay. Okay. Maybe I'm, I'm back. My internet's kind of in and out, but um, yeah, Wes, in, in addition to that, and just to kind of, cause well, let me kind of back up cause I wanted to say something and I think I, I went out, but kind of let's back up just a few, f- probably, I don't know, five, 10 minutes ago when you were making some points, I thought were really valid because some of the questions that ha- has led 
or that I would say more hard complementarianism has led to the way that you explain it, those questions shouldn't even exist. <laughs> and and I, I, I've seen so much abuse take place in the name of complementarianism. And I like the fact that you're bringing everything back to mutual submission and the fact that if, if a man is, is a true leader, a leader never demands anyone um, to do anything. Um, you know, I think Jesus is the epitome of a true leader, and he went on. He went to the cross. That's how he led. He led by washing feet. Um, he led by dying for us. And so, I, I doubt too many men want to lead that <laughs> in that in that capacity um, when they see that. And so, I like the fact that even if we don't agree on some of these subpoints, and even in perhaps some of the applications here and there. The fact that you bring it back to that, to me, that's the main point. The, 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 the main point is that if we can agree on that and it doesn't ever put anyone in a situation of abuse, then, and, and that's why we wanted to have you on here because that's where a lot of people think complementarianism ultimately leads, especially in today's society. And the fact that you worded it, I think, so well in bringing back the gospel message to, to everything that Paul said, to everything that Peter said, which is really what they're doing anyway. They're writing these letters based upon their understanding inspired by the Holy Spirit of the gospel. And so I just I want to compliment you on that. No pun intended. Um, complementarianism. But going back to what Lee said. You know, you and I, Wes, I don't, we've talked about this off air some, and I'm not going to name any names, but I know of people and you know of people within the Churches of Christ who they, they do. They really teach that not only should should the male be the leader, but this is the way the male has to lead. And this is the way the woman has to submit. And they go back to these specific cultural situations in the New Testament. And I personally have known of individuals who've written articles and even books condemning men who choose to stay at home to be with their children while their wife works because their wife is very ambitious, um, you know, maybe has a degree, maybe has a desire to work, and the husband would rather stay home and be with the kids. And they think that that's sinful. Um, in addition, you know, there's all sorts of different practical examples we could use. But yes, yeah, so so just to kind of go back to what Lee originally said, do you think that a lot of that was culturally situated and that today, even with your belief that, yes, males have the responsibility of leading their home, that could look completely different from culture to culture, depending upon what's going on during that time? Yeah, these are such great questions, and I and I think that I think that there can, it can and it will look very different. In fact, that's that's the beauty of the gospel, and that's why that's why the gospel is so much different than the law. That we don't have these really specific like if this happens to your goat, here's what you do. You know, we have these <laughs> right because it's it's meant for all people for all time, and so we have these the, these broad principles. We have these. Um, these overarching truths. And yes, these letters apply it in very specific ways. But even there, we have little mile markers. We have little points of here's why. And Titus chapter two, you both have, have made reference to it. Um, in verse five, it says that the word of God may not be reviled. That's why women were supposed to be working at home is so that the word of God wasn't reviled. And I, I and that's always Paul's intention when he tells women, hey, listen, don't be busybodies running around gossiping and, you know, uh, in everybody's business. 
be busy working, doing good, serving. When he tells men, hey, work, work hard with your hands so that you have food to provide to your family and to others that are in need. He's, he's saying our job is to make sure that the word of God isn't reviled so that people know that these are the kinds of upstanding people that Christians are. But I think back to the complementary idea is that, yes, it's still a man's responsibility. And so if my wife and I decide that she's going to go out and, quote unquote, be the breadwinner and she's going to go have the, the job that, that makes money and I'm going to stay home with the kids, I think that's fine, but if we fall into uh, financial ruin and we have no food to eat, I'm not going to blame her. I'm going to blame me. Uh, and, and I think, and I think that's, I think that's where it gets down to that. It's my responsibility to make sure my family. And I, again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying there. I'm not saying that everyone who doesn't have food to eat it's the it's the man's fault. But I'm saying if 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 I'm doing so because I just don't want to have a job and I'm sending her out to, to get a job and the, the, the buck still stops here and it's still my responsibility to make sure that my, my family has food to eat, has a roof over their head and is taken care of. Now, of course, there's going to be all kinds of other things that can, can impact those, those truths. But at the end of the day, Male leadership is about responsibility. It's about whose responsibility is it to make sure things go the way that they're supposed to go. It's not about who takes out the trash. It's about who's to blame if the house is overrun with trash. It's not about, it's not about whether or not somebody has a job or doesn't have a job. It's about well, why is everybody being lazy? Why is nobody working? Why is nothing getting done? If that's the case, we're going to look to the man first and we're going to say, why aren't you leading your family better than this? If everybody's being lazy, if nobody's working, if things aren't being taken care of, if responsibilities are going by the wayside, you have a responsibility to step up and lead your family. Now, again, it's not about making other people do what they're supposed to do. It's about leading with the fruit of the spirit. It's about leading like Jesus. And if the fruit of the spirit doesn't run throughout this conversation, if it's not at the heart of everything we do, both in our leadership and in our submission, then it's not a Christian complementarianism anyway. And and it's beside the point. I think if I think if men, because I wanted to make one more point and, and kind of ask you a question too. Um, I think if men understood complementarianism as you just pointed it out, they probably would not want to be a complementarian. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, because it's, and this is why we have these discussions, because everyone has certain things set in stone in their mind of, of what they think certain doctrines are. And when they realize there's all sorts of different understandings of, of said doctrine, it all of a sudden becomes a different story. And listening to you talk about the complementarian position, it's so different than the way I was even taught it growing up, the way that, that not just I naturally understood it, but even the way I was taught it in school, it was it was very different than the way you're explaining it. And that's why it's important for our audience to know whenever you hear that somebody believes something, don't automatically assume you know exactly what they believe. Um, they may have some the, some of the same conclusions, um, but then they may not. They they may come at it a different, completely a completely different way. Because what I'm hearing, what you're saying, ultimately is. The complementarian position has nothing to do about superiority and subordination. It has everything to do about the male, as you put it, going back to that idea of the firstborn, taking responsibility 
is really what it, if, if we can boil it down to anything, it's the, the man needs to take responsibility, not the woman needs to, su- to submit and obey the man. Would I be it's leadership be and service? Yeah. yeah. Leadership and service. You're nodding. So I'm going to assume that, yes, you would agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I think I'm still cutting out a little bit, but yeah, no, that, no, that's yeah. So that's kind of what I was asking Wes is that, you know, based upon his understanding, this is, it, it really places not a superiority with the male, but just a responsibility with the male. Would that be a correct way of summarizing it? Yes. That's, ex- I think that's exactly right. It, and it, and it really elevates the woman to a position of honor. Again, I realize that chivalry is is a romanticized idea that was never lived out. But I think that the gospel gives us a beautiful picture of what chivalry truly should be, where we treat our wives, where we treat women in general as if they're queens, where we open the door for them, where we, we lay down our lives for them, where we make it our goal to love them, to serve them, to protect them. Um, and so, yes, it's about men taking the responsibility to make sure things go the way that they're supposed to go and women coming alongside with all of their strength and all of their beauty and us working together to accomplish reflecting God's image into the world. I think that's fantastic. And I think that's a really good place for us to wrap this particular episode up. And in summary, the complementarian position when examined biblically is not a matter of man ruling over woman and keeping woman under his thumb. It is a leadership role that man takes. It's a responsibility that man takes in which he carries and shoulders the load of raising the family and guiding his family and leading his family through this life, seeking out their best good, even often to his detriment and his wife, the woman serves in helping him shoulder that load. She is a helper unto him. And I think whenever that conversation is framed in those terms, it it takes on a whole new tenor. It takes on a whole new life because it's no longer about subordination and who's in charge and who's the boss because it's not about who's the boss. That's, that's not the idea at all. It's like Jesus said, if you want to become great in the kingdom of God, you've got to become the least within the kingdom of God. And that, that idea in and of itself is a great way to, to, to really frame this conversation. Yeah, so, and Jesus, Jesus really flips that. Jesus shows what true responsibility looks like and, and, and leadership looks like and headship looks like in what he did. And I think something we would all agree with is that if we lead our serve, our submit the way Jesus did, <laughs> you know, there would be a lot less problems. And, and especially if, if with, even with the complementary position, if the way that you're leading within that framework is the same way Jesus led, you're not going to be demanding foot washings. You're going to be the one washing the feet. You're not going to be demanding someone go to the cross. You're going to be the one going to the cross. And, that really, Wes, I appreciate you you saying the, saying everything you've said in this episode because I think this puts complementarianism in a in a different light for a lot of people, and it's good for people to understand that there are different ways of viewing complementarianism. Just as you could say, we talked about this with egalitarianism. There's different ways of understanding it, and so um, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been fantastic and. For those who are wanting to know, well, what about worship and what about church? We're going to get into that in the next episode. 
Yeah, Wes, I want to echo what Kevin said. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Thank you for being a guest. We appreciate you so much. And before we wrap this episode up, do you have anything else you want to say or anything else you want to share? No, just my appreciation to you guys. Thanks, thanks so much. This has been a great conversation. Hey, thank you, brother. To our listeners, we want to thank you all as well. We appreciate you all. Our audience is growing all the time. And not too long ago, we started a Facebook discussion group for our audience. If you would like to talk about some of these ideas and these topics and have good conversations in a safe place, you can become a part of that conversation. Search for the Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace podcast discussion group on Facebook. Um, apply to be added and either myself or one of the other moderators will add you to the group. Um, we thank you all for listening. Give us that five-star review on iTunes or whatever platform it is that you use. And if you want to reach out to us, shoot us an email at the email address in the show notes. Thanks again so much. We appreciate all of you and we'll see you all soon.